one of the reasons I call it hype house is because it's all about finding your internal hype and like unleashing that inner badass within you so you can really march towards your goals and also align with your values and purpose in life. Welcome to another episode of Marketers Talking Marketing. Today we are joined by Hannah and we are going to talk about marketing leadership, moving into leadership from an individual contributor. And specifically, when you start a new role with leadership in mind, what are those key important things to do in the first 90 days to really set yourself up for growth? So Hannah, do you want to tell the audience a little more about yourself and then we'll dive into the conversation? Yes, I would love to. So my name is Hannah Jakover, and I'm currently um, running my own show at Hype House Coaching. And previous to that, I spent a little over a decade in the world of B2B marketing and tech and primarily working on the agency side for most of that, helping organizations from, you know, early stage startups all the way to enterprise businesses, the Googles and Microsofts of the world. And we were really helping them hone in on their demand gen, um, helping them with lead management, marketing operations, all that fun stuff that all of you do. And talking about it like early days, it was really early days. We were talking about things like ABM and, you know, reverse waterfall planning and lead scoring. So that for me was was extremely helpful in learning and absorbing what was coming to kind of mainstream in the industry, like, you know, fast forward five, six years. So then I uh, spent some time in a startup, Mad Kudu. I ran Demand Gen there. Super amazing time. Love that company. Love those founders. And in that time was just sort of a... Um, time for me, I, I was also going through some identity searching and some things going on in my personal life and just really looking to reclaim a lot of different things. And just, I think I was just a totally different person. I became a completely different human, just going through my own personal growth. And in that, like I was just searching for something new on the career side. And I think that I was like, wow, do I really want to just like be known for being a great demand gen marketer, like, is this really what I want to be doing? And um, obviously, the answer was no. <laughs> you know, like, here lies Hana, the marketer. It it needed for me to be about helping others, and it was always about that. Like, marketing and me in my roles was always about helping others, and I think that's what drew me into the agency consulting side of things. But I wanted to go deeper with that impact and have that one on one conversation with individuals to really help them accelerate their growth. So that led me to coaching and the coaching company that I have started, Hype House Coaching. And yeah, it's it's been a journey. It's been really fulfilling. And I help others really just show up how they want to show up and in all areas of their life and achieve their goals and one of the reasons I call it hype house is because it's all about finding your internal hype and like unleashing that inner, inner badass within you so you can really march towards your goals and also align with your values and purpose in life. I love that. There is nothing from, from my perspective, nothing more rewarding than seeing like for seeing employees and former employees be successful and really almost step into their own. Mm-hmm. Going from, I have some that started as like an intern and then they, you know, become an account manager. And I remember there was one, the first time it happened, uh, he was an intern, came an account manager, was on a call and was explaining something to a client. And I had this overwhelming feel of joy. And I was like, 
he's all growing up. They're listening to him. And now he's like senior director at some tech company. Mm-hmm. And I was like, man, it, it is. It's so rewarding to see people find that. And sometimes they just need an external party to 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 help them find, help them get there with it. I yeah. just word vomited that whole last sentence, but <laughs> <laughs> I was I uh, picking up what you were putting down. <laughs> yeah. So, so typically do you predominantly work with marketers who are like midway through their career and kind of growing up that corporate path? What is- yeah. So primarily where, where my sweet spot is, is I'm working with emerging executives. So that could look like a lot, right? That could, um, if you self-identify as an emerging executive, or you've been told you're an emerging executive, if you are on that path, then I'm a person to work with. And also executives, current executives who are recognizing what's happening in the industry. They're recognizing that there's a general sh- generational shift happening right now. They're recognizing that what Gen Z and millennials want is very different than what they grew up with in terms of traditional leadership yeah. and how organizations are ran. It's completely changing. And not only that, but we're seeing this generational shift of millennials sitting in these decision-making seats. And so, yeah, working with both of those entering into those seats because there's a huge gap there. And then the executives that want to, you know, improve the way that they relate to the future generations and those emerging executives and also just align with their own values and vision and purpose and like live kind of a new, uh, a new executive life. It's interesting. There's definitely, I, I, I personally (laughs) was like, you know, raise your hand if you've been victimized by an executive who thinks you're too young to do anything. (laughs) 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 Like, (laughs) because there's, there are definitely executives I've talked to where in past roles, I've done executive coaching and been on track for leadership. And there's been people who are like, no, like you're too young. You don't have enough gray hair. Mm-hmm. It's like, whoa, hold the horses. I have a massive impact in the organization. Like I've, I've driven all these results and I've done it multiple times through like multiple product launches and multiple iterations. What's going on here? And there's other executives who get it. And they're like, there's great talent. Let me foster that and bring them along. There definitely is people who, who are not getting in. And I can't imagine in five or 10 years, that they're still going to be leading at organizations that aren't embracing the way that the modern workforce wants to be led and be worked with. And those leaders want to be nurtured with it. Mm-hmm. Yeah. And there's something to be said there too about lived experience, right? And that's something that like, I have a lot of unique lived experiences that I know a lot of people on this planet will never have. And when you have unique lived experiences, it like, it's like dog years, right? Like you have to go through your own leaps and bounds to come out on the other side of some of those things. And I think we forget that. I think when we're in a business setting, we forget that, hey, just because you're a certain age does not mean that you don't have experience, lived experience, professional experience that don't necessarily equate to your age. And just because you're not you know, you're young, um, doesn't mean that you can't have all of the experience to sit in those seats and make impactful change. I also think that we're stuck on this, like millennials and Gen Z are young, right? That's 
false. <laughs> like the millennials are so like mid, false. right? Like what elder millennials are what in their forties? Oh God. Yeah. I had a call uh, a little bit ago with a woman and she had she wanted advice about being the youngest in the room. And I was like, mm-hmm. I got you. Like that was my a majority of my life, I was the youngest in the room and I was often the only woman. I was the youngest shareholder at some companies that I invested in. I remember I would go to like annual meetings in elementary school and no one would talk to me. And I'm like, I am the shareholder here. Like <laughs> I was, you know, I, I graduated, I was young in my grade, graduated early, um, always found myself in spaces I probably shouldn't be in, mm-hmm. but was able to get a seat at the table. And so didn't ask why I got there, but just took advantage of it. And when I was talking to her, I had that moment of realization that we're not peers like coming together to collectively talk about our shared experience. She's coming to me because I'm the adult and she wants advice about how to navigate it from someone who's been through it and gone somewhere. And it just hit me and I was like, oh my God, I'm in, I'm, I am a grown up. (laughs) Yeah. 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 And there's also, there's a theory out there that I really, really love and um, actually really changed my perspective on a lot of my relationships. And it's uh, Keegan's adult development theory. And it's not correlated with age, right? I mean, there's a certain part of it that is, right? Because when we're born, we're all at this specific stage of adult development um, because we're adolescents, right? But as you move through adulthood, you essentially, you know, you develop, right? And you have to get past certain points in your life where things aren't so they don't grip you so much, right? Like I'm not gripped by the fact that like I have to perform in my role and I want others to like me and da 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 Like that's a specific adult development stage that you sit in. And until you can kind of get past that and look at it more objectively and like take a step back and be like, oh, wow, this is not the point of this, all of this, you know, only then you can move into that next adult development stage. And a lot of adults, no matter how old they are, like sit in one specific stage. 75% of adults sit in one specific stage and will never maybe even move on to that next stage. And again, like wow. it's not depend on age. My mind is blown. <laughs> <laughs> That's such an interesting approach to it because definitely a hundred percent there's, there's, I mean, there's someone specific that comes to mind where it's like, you do not know how to converse. <laughs> like you, you react very emotionally to everything we do. And and yeah, that's interesting. Yeah. And like, if you think about like a five-year-old, I have a five-year-old, right? Like okay. he can't see the bigger picture. He, he cannot see it because he's in it so deep. He's in it so deep and he's developmentally like not ready to, but as you get older and the lessons you learn and the experience you have, you are able to zoom out and start to see the bigger picture and then start to kind of use that as a way out of that current developmental stage, or I guess like a way to evolve from it. Is that a tool? And we'll we'll drop some links in the show notes below for everyone who's also like, whoa, let me go Google that because I've never heard about that. Is that something where you would look at it and you would say, okay, I am self-identifying in this stage and my goal is to get to the next stage. And so how do I work on maybe some of the the thought patterns I have or the the way I'm looking at things? Like what can I do to kind of progress up stage-wise? Is that the goal or is it really more of here's a tool to assess how everyone around you, where they're at, where you're at and how to best communicate or maybe both. 
Yeah, and I think it's both. And you also have to consider, like, ethically, like, you really, like, I would never be like, oh, hey, like, you're in this adult development stage because that's not ethical, right? That's not, I don't know that. I think it's a really great tool for individual personal growth, right? Like, if you can recognize what stage you're in, like, I am in the socialized mind stage, which means, right, what does that mean to me? How, what does that mean? with my communication? What does it mean with my cognitive abilities and my interpersonal skills? And how can I then work with that and identify like what is keeping me in the stage? Like what can't I see? And using that to help yourself evolve into a self-authoring mind where you're going to have, you know, just more consciousness, more self-regulation, like understanding the ideas and how things work together. And yeah, so I do think it's so powerful to use it as a tool for personal development. And yeah, I mean, I do think it does help with relationships, right? Like just understanding and like keeping it to yourself. Like if you were to say, hmm, like, okay, like they're exhibiting these types of behaviors, maybe that means that I need to communicate with them in a different way and right, meet people where they're at. Yeah. I, that is, I think such a big part of success in any role as you're trying to grow into leadership is understanding how people want to be communicated with and communicating in a way that's going to be collaborative with them versus, especially if you're like, I just, I go back to the sales and marketing divide, which exists in some organizations still doesn't exist in many organizations, which is great. When you come in and talk to your sales partner about maybe you're under delivering on your number, but you need to talk to them about what they can do to help make sure collectively that you still get above, like there's ways to deliver, uh, to deliver that communication in a way that, that doesn't induce conflict. I think back to not nonviolent communication Yes, for feedback too. And news like that, it's such a difference maker. If you can really become well-versed in how to do that. Yeah. I always yeah. tell people good news delivered poorly is worse than bad news delivered. Well, mm-hmm. it's that's, so true. And um, yeah, that's the right way to say it. <laughs> I think through that like today. Made sense to me. <laughs> uh, I'm so happy you brought in nonviolent communication because that's a tool that I sometimes will help coaches um, see, you know, and, and use, and and they'll figure out how to use it in the challenges that they're experiencing. Another thing I think about too is neuroscience, right? And I don't know why we don't want to talk about neuroscience. It really makes me upset because it's so important. It's so important. Our brain and the way that we, our bodies work, like, hello, if you are leading a team, if you are in charge of humans and helping them grow and helping them develop, and you don't understand the basics of how their brain works, like you're going to be in trouble. There's this whole world of managers and leaders who, and I'm going to say, I think they tend to share some characteristics of individuals who are just promoted into leadership roles who don't give a fuck about anyone on their team. Mm. They don't care about anyone. Whenever I'm interviewing, I always ask someone like, what gets you most excited about running a team? And there's a ton of people who will be like, it's, they'll say things that are individual contributor work. They'll say things like, I love, you know, doing, I love building programs. It's like, mm-hmm. do you like nurturing the people that are coming to work for you? Right. As an early stage employee, if you have a bad manager, that's not just impacting your career that can like fuck you up outside of work. Yes. That and can I, do damage. 
Yes. And I think we also don't talk about that. We don't talk about workplace trauma because we have a tendency to also like trauma, like whatever. That's only for like people who have like serious big T traumas. But like, listen, y'all, there are big T traumas and there are little T traumas and we all have little T traumas and workplace trauma is one of those. And we just don't talk about it. And when you have you know, and when you're in a toxic workplace, that's trauma, that's trauma. And it does stay with you unless you know how to kind of work through that and release that, which can be really, really hard to do. Or it normalizes that as an acceptable experience in the corporate world. Mm -hmm. Coming up, Mm -hmm. I'm sure you've had experiences too coming up in tech. And a lot of the, like the bro tech culture stuff that we talk about today as like, oh my God, like they did that was common for so long. And if you come in there as an intern and then you work for a company like that and your first 10 years of working is that environment, it's really easy just to think that's normal and start perpetuating it. Yeah. We, I think we collectively as a society feel very comfortable talking about all this when it comes to personal life and personal relationships. When it comes to work, it's like this thing that you just don't touch. Mm-hmm. But mm-hmm. how much time do we, how, what percentage of our day do we spend with coworkers at work doing work, it's a massive chunk. And so if you're yeah. not addressing your interpersonal relationships in the environment in which you may or may not have say, it's very, working is very different than a dating relationship. Mm-hmm. You know, you're in there, you're working for someone. Ideally, you're in there for, you know, a couple of years at least, maybe for the long, I wasn't say ideally for the long haul, but no one, no one retires from a company anymore. But you're in there to do good work. And if you have a horrible relationship with your boss, that is going to impact everything. Mm-hmm, it's going to mm-hmm. impact everything. And if your boss doesn't care about their employees and they only care about doing the work, they're not they're not there. They're not showing up. They're not invested with you to resolve it. Yeah. 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 And I do think too, like I do, I like to do a lot of systems thinking with my coaches because, you know, we have a tendency to place a lot of blame on individuals, Right. And in some cases it's warranted, but in other cases it's like, and we do this to ourselves too. We place blame on ourselves. And so it's like, zoom out. Like, what are the difficult systems that you're navigating right now that may have an impact on this that you don't control? And so let's eat, let's equalize some of where that blame may lay, even though, yes, you might not be able to control all of it. At least it takes some of that outside of yourself and say, as a system, you know, as an industry, right? Our industry could, you could say that's a system. What are we doing to help leaders develop? Right now, not a lot. There's only, uh, and this goes back to what you said too, like a lot of people who are really good at their jobs, they're really awesome individual contributors, and then they get promoted into manager positions. And only 10% of people actually naturally show leadership skills and qualities. Okay. And then only 20 more percent show like additional abilities that could be nurtured into like, you know, managerial skills that could be nurtured into leadership skills. Yeah. So there's like a sliver, a sliver of people that are naturally good leaders and will show up that way. You have to be taught like this. It is a skill. And I think a lot of people forget that and just think, yeah, I can shift right over. I've seen other people do it. I can do it too. When in reality, it is a skill. It is something that needs to be taught. And as a system, we also need to, you know, collectively change the way that we're thinking about leadership development and, you know, who we're promoting. 100%. 
There, I mean, I, I almost always go back to like personal anecdotes, <laughs> which is, you know, has inherent bias in it just because it's like my experience with it. Uh, I have a, a friend who has managed teams for almost a decade and we were chatting a couple weeks ago because they have an employee who's not performing well at all and they're, they're putting them on a PIP Zoom. And so they wanted feedback on some of the PIP language. And when I was talking to them, what did you say in their last performance review? Oh, we just do them once a year. And it was like a while ago. I don't know what I said. Do you give them feedback? Um, are you setting, like, how are you showing up to set this person up for success? And in talking through it, what came out is that they weren't. They weren't clearly setting expectations for work. They weren't providing timely feedback. And so when they eventually did deliver the PIP, this person was shocked because they got no feedback at all. In that case, it's not your employee who's messing up. You have failed as a manager to show up properly for them. And it turned out that employee is neurodivergent and they need different accommodations at work in order to be set up for success. And that my, the manager had no clue because they never had a conversation where it would have been like sussed out. The employee never divulged it until after the PIP and they divulged HR. So you have this situation where a manager, again, decades of management experience, no train, no one's ever talked to them about it. No one's ever trained them on how to do it. Mm -hmm. And they've never been in a situation where they thought maybe I'm doing this wrong and I should go seek outside resources to help me get better at doing it. Right. Until right. it blows up. And for that employee, that's probably a big T traumatizing experience for them just yes. to get pipped out of nowhere. Especially if they're neurodivergent. Yeah. 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 And there's multiple issues there, right? Like the, just the fact, just thinking about neurodiversity and, and, how neurodivergent individuals have to, what they have to do to survive, yeah. right? Like in a workplace, I'm neurodivergent and that was a huge driving factor in me not being able to operate in the systems of a corporate world anymore and remove myself from that. And it just, because I, I just, I couldn't find the accommodations that I needed and yeah, it's super challenging, but yeah, on the manager side too. And I'll say this, like going back to just linking back to the neuroscience portion of this is we should all know if you're a leader, you should even know that when you say the word performance review, when you just say that word, the, the amygdala, yeah. like what happens in the amygdala, like, boop, just like, like fight uh, or fight, fight or yeah. fight. You've yeah. triggered, you've activated a response in that individual's brain where they are going to be dysregulated, right? Their nervous system is like, nope, nope. Like this is a situation where I feel there is a threat and I'm going to go into survival mode here. And you stop, you stop processing new information. You cannot communicate clearly. So like, even just that, like that word, like just saying, we're going to have a performance review triggers that response. So learning language that, you know, how, how can I communicate with my team and also work with their nervous system or at least create an environment where regulation and the ability to even co-regulate in some instances is the norm. You know, we're not, we're thinking about, okay, this type of language or these types of actions activate that response and we want to avoid them. If if our goal is to, you know, cultivate growth and grow as a team, collaborate as a team, better communication, all of those great things, then understanding the brain and language and how it impacts, you know, trust, things like trust, communication, belonging, like those are very important things that the brain picks up on. Yeah. People 
I think often undervalue the need for psychological safety yes. in your team and work environment too. Absolutely. With it. You know, if you, I've had employees in the past that are specifically coming to mind who had ADD, who had come to me and told me because they were afraid that if the person that we reported into, if they found out that they would be let go because that person had made comments mm. that weren't great. <laughs> that were that I, I can understand how they would see that as a negative connotation of, you know, if, if I'm having uh, challenges performing and taking care of all these little tiny details, which I know I suck at, mm-hmm. that my job's at risk instead of, hey, like I'm not great at these tiny little details. What can we do to adjust that so I can be set up for success? And that's such a they had both been there quite a while and never shared it. And as their manager, it hurt me that they had, that they had been in a situation where they couldn't be their authentic true self and they couldn't share it because fear of repercussion. Mm -hmm. And I know that for both of them, they're, you know, five, six jobs into their working world. And so I was like, holy shit, like that's a lot to carry with you. And it comes because they all, they each had experiences where they had seen coworkers be terminated for performance who operated similarly. Mm-hmm. And Absolutely. that's such like, that is such a heavy thing to carry to every job and not be able to really like talk about it. Like that's a lot like that. It makes me so as someone who's not neurodivergent, I, I feel like I can empathize, but I can't fully relate to it, but it makes me so sad that like someone would operate in that world and it does so yeah. much damage and people don't care. And I was going to ask, where do you think it starts? Is it, is it managers speaking out and saying, Hey, like, this is how I run my team. My team is high performing. Other people should run teams like mine because businesses ultimately do care about revenue, like tie it into revenue. Or is it leadership saying we're only going to hire people like this, or we're going to invest in training to make our managers this way? Like where feels like there's so there's so much to the system. Where does it start to make change? I think it has to be both. I think it's top down and bottoms up. I think it's and one interesting thing the International Coaching Federation has a really great study where they have um, noticed that millennials are the highest in terms of adopting coaching. So the millennials are like, yes, we want this. We want professional development and we're not getting it. We're not getting it from our employees. So like, we'll go get it ourselves. We'll use our, you know, whatever stipends we have, whatever benefits we can like squeeze out, like we will use it. So I think it is that like, almost like kind of doing it yourself, right? Like where you can and investing in yourself if that's possible for you. And I do think it's also very much the responsibility for leadership to set the tone and to reevaluate some of these things. I was at an organization where there was a quote unquote bad hire. And it was interesting, like just kind of observing that situation where and watching it evolve. And, and I worked with the individual and we made really, really great progress just because we were starting to understand the needs and how they worked and what the preferences were and just spending time and then building trust around that. And then, you know, leadership's still kind of watching all of this and not really seeing the value quick enough. When in reality, it's like they were also responsible for bringing that individual on board. And like, what were, what was the expectations missed there? Like they, 
literally made the decision to bring that individual on board, but there was a clear miss in expectation. So who is responsible for defining those expectations and for communicating those expectations and, you know, making sure everybody understands is on the same page. And I think, you know, same goes for development programs is what are you doing to foster and nurture your future leadership and your current leadership? Who's in charge of hiring? Who's in charge of promoting? Because today we just like sometimes like very like haphazardly like throw different people on the committees and they may not be the best people to suss out, hey, is this is this person a good leader? Do they have leadership skills and qualities that can evolve and help us grow as a company? So I think it is very much like tops down, top, yeah, bottoms up, tops down approach is, is what's needed. Well, and even, you know, on the, in the interview panel, coaching to look for those things, mm -hmm. it seems like in, as you know, companies, oftentimes they hire to fill roles versus hiring to fill a team and to, to bring on people who are going to fit into, um, I heard the phrase once, it wasn't like, it's a hiring. I think they, I think the phrase was like a cultural ad. So not someone who's a culture fit, but someone who's a culture ad that brings also like unique perspective or another vantage point to the table and thinking about how are you structuring the whole team and the organization, not just like looking for someone to do work to get to an end goal. Mm -hmm. And there's, there's still companies that think about people as resources, <laughs> <laughs> to get them to that angle versus you're investing in building a team and setting everyone up for success and, you know, being open, open and acknowledging that you need to, to give back to your employees. I fear through the recession that like the first program budgets to get cut are learning and development too and yeah. coaching with it, which just puts us in a worse situation because yeah. now you have, yeah, you have employees that are potentially coming in from being laid off at their last role. Or having a couple layoffs because, you know, this has been going on for a while. Mm -hmm. And so they're coming in with some trauma and then you're putting them into a situation where maybe they're not going to be set up for success. Reporting to a manager who was an individual contributor who doesn't know how to manage. Mm -hmm. <laughs> like mm -hmm. it's, it's just a recipe for disaster. Yeah. Yeah. And we're seeing that. We're seeing learning and development teams being cut back, their budget being cut back, the teams themselves being laid off is kind of like the first, you know, ones to go. But what we're also seeing is an increase in internal coaching. So companies are recognizing that it's important. And I think sometimes what we what we also conflate, I guess, is is the learning and development teams it's about kind of like that collective, like as a collective, how are we nurturing the team? What are we doing to provide these opportunities? And very rarely does that often incorporate one-on-one -on -one coaching. And that is where the, the development of a leader happens. You know, you can go to all the trainings in the world, all the like group workshops and all of that stuff, but like, which I'm a big proponent of, you know, in the right setting and the right, you know, modality. But I think that you have to develop yourself as a leader first. And that involves some like hardcore one-on-one -on -one work in so you can you can see so you can zoom out and you can see everything in front of you and really work through that and really kind of come to your own design your own solutions on how best to move forward or how best to communicate or how best to achieve a goal that's not going to happen in a group 
workshop or like a team training. You know what I mean? Yeah. There is a great book I read called Reboot. I cannot remember the author. Mm, but, yes. I think I have um, it back there somewhere. <laughs> yeah. I I love, I love books that are, that dive into kind of the cognitive engineering side of like why we do what we do mm-hmm. on it. And I was expecting you know, like a, a nice read book. And I, I listened to audiobooks and I was driving and I think he was like three or four sentences in and I started crying because <laughs> he was like, like the lead, like the leaders of today are just like the broken children of yesterday. And like, you know, when mm. your executive is screaming at you, it's because their mother, you know, their mother is just going into this example and I just start crying. Yeah. And, but he talks about how a lot of times how we show up uh, and, and work is a reflection of what we've been through, yes. right? It all kind of builds as a person. And so to be a really effective leader, you often need to work through your childhood trauma and heal, heal from a lot of it. And, and I'm going to throw work traumas in there too, because that stuff is sometimes, you know, on par worse than <laughs> the non-work traumas yes. for a lot of people. Yeah. Yeah. Our external is a reflection, right? It's a reflection of what's, what's going on inside of us. And if you have traumas, if you have things that you've chosen to just stuff, stuff deep down in there and not deal with it, it's going to show up. It's going to show up and you're going to sit there and you're going to wonder, why can't I move past this? Why is this so challenging? Why does this keep happening? And guarantee you there is a deeply rooted issue there that you've got to work through. Yeah. So for wrapping it all together, for people who are emerging leaders on the leadership track, want to become leaders someday, it sounds like starting point is learn yourself, you know, learn, learn where you're at. Can you share again the name of the, the adult development? Oh yeah. It's Keegan's uh, adult development theory. Yeah, I'm gonna Google that after this call. <laughs> yeah, yeah, it's it's a really great it's a really great um, framework. And like again, I would also say there. And I so I went to an evidence based coaching program, and so which is amazing because we learn theories and models and things that like are you know backed by a lot of research and science, neuroscience in some cases too. And at the same time, theories are meant to be proven wrong, right? Theories are meant to be disproven. That's the whole point of a theory. And so when I look at the adult development theory, I also look at it through the neurodivergent lens of, you know, hmm, like there are some individuals that may not have the ability to actually see these things. Like their brain will not let them. So that's the other thing that I'll say about any theory that I throw out there to anybody is I always think of it from that context of does it work for you and your your specific context? It, does it work for a neuro, neurodivergent individual? Does it work for a BIPOC individual considering everything else? Because it may not. There may be some things in there that are like, no. So I think using the theories, using the evidence as like yeah, like a good framework, a good place to kind of get things going. And then considering all of those external factors and the systems and things that are actually possible versus not. Awesome. Well, thank you so much for joining us today. I feel like it's such a great conversation. We'll link in the show notes below links out to your coaching resources. The book I mentioned that I may have messed the name up of. <laughs> we'll link it all below. And, you know, Hannah, thank you for joining and we'll see everyone on the next episode. Thank you for having me.